the Cultural Revolution was so terrible. I mean, there was there was so much violence against the people, against organized violence, organized from the very top, and people were beaten to death. I mean, the terror we lived under, the torture people went through. In fact, that's what was my father first said, and when he got into trouble, he said there is nothing culture in it, and there is only brutality, and that's not culture. Yong Chang is a fearless writer who is among the most widely read Chinese authors of her generation. Born in 1952 in Sichuan province, she was raised inside Mao Zedong's communist China. Her family's experience of that society and that leader compelled her to write her first groundbreaking memoir, Wild Swans, Three Daughters of China. In 1978, Yung Chang left China to study in England. Eventually, she received a PhD from the University of York and married the British historian John Halliday. As a writing team, she and her husband co-published the monumental biography Mao, The Unknown Story, following which Yung Chang went on to write two other award-winning books, Empress Dowager Sishi, The Concubine Who Launched Modern China, and Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. Jung's books have been translated into more than 40 languages and sold more than 15 million copies outside mainland China, where they are banned. I'm Georgina Godwin, and I spoke to Jung Chang for the big interview. Jung, thank you so much for, for joining us. Now, you grew up in China, but you were born before the Cultural Revolution. Do you remember that time? Um, yes, I I was born in 1952. The Cultural Revolution started in 1966, and it lasted 10 years to Mao's death in 1976. But I grew up under the communists, because the communists took power in 1949. Jung, you went 14 years old when the Cultural Revolution happened. But what can you tell me about your life before then? The Cultural Revolution started in 1966, and I was born in 1952. So I was 14 when it started. But the Cultural Revolution was only one phase, the last phase in Mao's rule. And before that, Mao and the communists ruled China from 1949. I grew up in this very privileged environment of the communist elite because both my parents were communist officials and my father was um, was a fairly senior official. You know, I grew up in this compound with armed guards, gardeners, chauffeurs and cooks. I went to a privileged school. I led a very privileged life until the Cultural Revolution started and everything changed. And so tell me about that change. How did it impact directly on on you? My father was one of the few who stood up to Mao and protested the violence and atrocities of the Cultural Revolution. So as a result, he was arrested, tortured, driven insane and he was exiled to a camp and died prematurely, tragically. My mother was under tremendous pressure to denounce my father. She refused. 
So she went through over a hundred of these ghastly denunciation meetings. She was stood on the stage. And she was made to kneel on broken glass. She was kicked and beaten, and she was paraded in the streets where children spat at her and threw stones at her. And we were, we the children, were exiled to various places. And I was sent to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant, and later a steel worker and an electrician. Now we were under tremendous pressure to denounce our parents. Of course, we refused. You know, the Cultural Revolution destroyed countless families because the children were under pressure to set upon their parents. But my family became closer because we stood by our parents. I spent most of the Cultural Revolution sort of with my parents, looking after them, and so on. And in that sense, I I didn't have my teenage. I was sort of I grew from childhood right into adulthood.、Mm. How did you get away, Yung? I mean, nobody usually nobody pointed a gun at you and forced you to do evil. And people who did、um, terrible things also had had a degree of responsibility. I mean, you could opt out, and that's what I did. I also hated what happened, what was happening all around me. You know, in schools, teachers became victims, and I saw my teachers being denounced, being beaten up, and I was just terrified of all this, and I hated all this. So as soon as I Had a chance, and I opted out. And there were many people like me, and there was even a term for it. And those who opted out, and I became one of the first a group of Chinese to come to the West to study by passing an exam, an academic exam. I did. Reasonably well, so I became one of the lucky fourteen, and that was nineteen seventy-eight. I wonder. You hear a lot of people now referring to the so-called culture wars,、uh, both here and in America, and comparing it to the Cultural Revolution. Do you think that that's a fair comparison? Absolutely not. I mean, they are absolutely not. To be compared with the Cultural Revolution, and it was an, it was absolutely no comparison. I don't know how people got this idea that、uh, what's happening now, whether you agree with it or not, or how much you agree. I mean, they bear no resemblance to the Cultural Revolution in China. In fact, that's what was my father first said, and when he got got into trouble, he said there is nothing culture in it, and there is only brutality, and that's not culture. So no, I don't think the the two events can be compared.、Mm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you wrote your book *Wild Swans*. It was an absolutely huge success, and it it paints a portrait of the indoctrination fed to the Chinese populace at the time. And I wonder what kept you strong, your family together, and you being able to escape that indoctrination. It was very difficult 
to come out of that indoctrination um, because you know the power of brainwashing can never be overstated. I was 14 and before the Cultural Revolution I'd already you know read a lot of books and came from a family you know my parents were book lovers and my father's library was lined from the floor to the top um, filled with books and we were taught I already received education which instilled some good values in me. I guess there is also all these violence and atrocities just went against my nature. I just hated all those. And of course, I also read books. I mean, in the Cultural Revolution, books were burned across China. And my father's library was burned. And he was forced to burn some of his own books. And I witnessed it, and I witnessed his utter agony. And I think that was the beginning of his mental insanity. That was what drove him insane. I was also able to read over a thousand foreign and Chinese classics, and they kind of helped to, for my mind um, to function. And the reason was that I had a 13-year-old brother who was very entrepreneurial. He loved collecting stamps, um, but collecting stamps was condemned, along with many other hobbies, as a bourgeois habit. So he couldn't collect stamps. And then he spotted a black market dealing in the Mao badge. And in those years, we all had to wear the Mao badge. There were over a billion badges of Mao's head produced in China. And my brother then became a connoisseur in the Mao badges. And he started to collect the Mao badge. And there was a black market with other people. So he made a small fortune dealing in the Mao badges. And with the money, he bought books on another black market. Because in those days, people who don't, didn't want to see their books being burned um, often sold their books at that black market. And the Red Guards, who raided people's houses and took away their books, sometimes also sold the books at that black market to make some money. So my brother built up a collection of um, over a thousand foreign and Chinese classics. You know, I read Shakespeare, the complete works, I mean, in, all translated into Chinese. Yeah. I read Dickens, I read Jane Austen, George Eliot, and so on, and along with the Chinese poetry and the classics. So I, I was kept sane by these books. I guess also it requires some intelligence and some, you know, inquisitive mind. And in fact, I think it also, the Cultural Revolution brought about the brain death of a nation. But it also showed that how the mind can't be killed and it might be suppressed 
but given the right nourishment, the mind can actually assert itself, will assert itself, and recover. So I, that's how I, um, I lived through the cultural revolution. And clearly it sowed the seeds in you for, for wanting to write. I mean, Wild Swans was the most incredible success. Did you ever think that you'd have this book that sold in the millions in another language? Well, I never thought of selling books. <laughs> I mean, in those days in China, or nearly all writers were condemned, sent to the gulag, driven to suicide, some were executed. And to be the writer was to enter the most dangerous profession. So even though when I was a child, when I loved writing, I couldn't dream of becoming a writer. But, you know, you're, you just have this dream that I couldn't even spell out to myself. I wrote my first poem when I was um, 16 years old on my birthday. I was lying in bed polishing my poem when I heard the door banging. And the Red Guard had come to raid our flat. Um, and if they discovered my poem, I would get into trouble and my parents would get into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. But the desire to write never left me. And in the following years, I was exiled to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant. And then I became a steelworker and electrician. And when I was spreading manure in the paddy fields, and when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen. I guess some of the stories in Wild Swans had been written many times um, with that imaginary pen in my head, because when I eventually came to write it in, in Britain between 1988, end of 1988, um, published in 1991, it, it took me just uh, two years to write that rather reasonably long book. Huge book, I think. <laughs> After that, you wrote Mao, The Unknown Story. And I wondered why you chose him. I mean, clearly this had a huge... He and his policies had a huge, huge impact on your life. Yes, I mean, he dominated my life. And um, I saw him turning the lives of a quarter of the world's population upside down. And um, yet, you know, his portrait was still hanging on Tiananmen Gate um, and still is there. And his corpse is still, you know, in the centre of the capital for people to worship. His face was and still is on every banknote. And I felt people didn't understand him. And I felt I myself had many unanswered questions. To write a biography was the best way to get to know somebody. And so I decided to write a biography of Mao. And my husband, John Halliday, was also very interested in Mao. So we embarked on this project together. This book took us 12 years to research and write. 
you found out some fascinating things within the course of your research, particularly the, the reason behind the famine. That was the famine in which 14 million people died of starvation. 40, yeah, four zero, around 40 million people died um, between 1958 and 1961. Yes, well, the, this was the most shocking thing. For me, this was the most shocking thing I, we found. We found that the reason for the famine was because Mao was exporting the food which he knew his people were dependent on for survival to Russia and Eastern Europe to buy military technology and equipment to build the bomb, the missiles, the military industry for his dream to dominate the world. And that was why this famine happened. He exported food. And then China didn't have money, didn't have much money to pay for these expensive purchases. So Mao starved his people to death and exported food. And was there any attempt to interfere with the writing of the book or the publication? Not for the writing of the book, because I think everybody was taken by surprise by our book. I mean, including myself. We discovered so many things and so many shocking facts. I think the sort of officials in China, they, whatever the people, the census, they probably never dreamed of seeing these facts. I mean, I think they didn't know themselves. I think there was no interference. And also from Wild Swans and from the way we conducted interviews, and from the reaction of the people I interviewed, I can see people felt that we had integrity and we are honest. We are dedicated to writing an honest book and nobody could influence us. You moved on then to write about the Empress Dowager Cixi and I wondered why she played such a vital role in China. Well, I got interested in Cixi first when I was writing Wild Swans. And my grandmother had bound feet, crushed and bound feet, which tortured her throughout her life. And I was, when I was a child, I witnessed this. And so when I was researching Wild Swans, um, I, re- I was surprised to um, realize that the Empress Dowager was the person who first banned foot binding because we were, you know, vaguely told in our education that somehow the communists banned foot binding. Then I realized it was the Empress Dowager, but her image was um, a evil woman. She was um, ultra-conservative, she was cruel. It was her who held China back, who caused all China's problems. And um, yet, when I was researching Wild Swans, and I just suddenly felt this was so different from what we were told. And then, but of course, when I was writing Wild Swans, I, I, could, I didn't do anything. And then many years later, when I was researching Mao, I realized that Mao, who grew up 
under the Empress Dowager and、um, in the period after her death, and Mao enjoyed the kind of freedom, and had the sort of opportunities. Which I couldn't dream of when I was growing up under Mao many decades later. So again, that made me interested in her. So after the biography of Mao was published, I decided to write a biography of her to find out exactly who she was and what exactly she did. Why you know her image is so different from the little bit of her. That I knew. Your latest book is called Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, and that's about the three Soon sisters from Shanghai. The story goes: one loved money, one loved power, and one loved her country. Can you tell us about those three women? The story goes: that's the、um, the communist story. Yeah, that I mean, to them, one was a communist, Red Sister. She. Became Mao's vice chair, so to the communists, she was the one who loved her country.、Um, she married a man called Sun Yat-sen, who is known in the Chinese-speaking world as the father of China, Republic in China, or father of China, and that is because he was the first person to advocate republicanism. And China became a republic in 1912. I mean, that was the beginning of the fame of the three sisters because one of them married him, and little sister Meiling married Sun Yat-sen's successor, Chiang Kai-shek, who was the ruler of nationalist China before Mao drove him to Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek and little sister Meiling married Chiang Kai-shek. Big sister Eileen was also、uh, fiercely anti-communist, like little sister Meiling, and she actually made the marriage between Chiang Kai-shek and Meiling, and so she used her position to become one of the richest women in China, and made her husband. I mean she. Really, basically, made her husband, H.H.、Um, Kong, Chiang Kai-shek's finance minister and prime minister for many years. The three sisters were right at the center of power for you know one could say in the most of the twentieth century. They were the best kind of eyewitnesses of the times. They didn't. Make policy, but they influence the policy. It's an absolutely fascinating story and a really important part of history. But I wonder, given your relationship with China now, how easy it was to access records and to do your research. Fortunately, you know, with this Three Sisters book, a lot of research had already been done. You know, when I was researching Mao, that took John and me, my husband and me, twelve years. And a lot of research was relevant, both for the Empress Dowager book and for the Three Sisters book. And when we, John and I, were doing research in the nineteen nineties, we were very lucky, and we caught a window of opening, because in Russia, 
Yeltsin opened the Russian archives, which was a treasure trove for all the communist countries, because they all sent reports to Russia. It was an absolute treasure trove for us, for, for our Mao biography. And basically, you know, Russia was practically written on every page of um, our biography of Mao. And, and um, then in China in the 1990s, um, it was rather relaxed. And it was really, if I may say, also paradise of research. I mean, that sort of relaxed atmosphere is no longer there in China. I mean, even after Tiananmen, I mean, the, the reform, the opening up had built up such a momentum. So we were able to do a lot of research in China. I interviewed over 200 people of who to do with Mao in that circle, in the inner circle. Witnesses, you know, Mao's colleagues, uh, staff, and um, relatives, and uh, they are also relevant to the um, biography of the three sisters. Now, about them, most of the documents are not in China. They are in America, because the sisters were all educated in America, and their archives are in America. And researching in America was, is a paradise. <laughs> you know, the ease, the helpfulness of the archivists and the librarians. And it was absolutely wonderful. And Chiang Kai-shek, for example, kept a diary for the 57 years until very near his death. He wrote diaries every day. I mean, they are highly revealing, highly personal. And they are at Hoover. Institute in the archives. And of course, Taiwan is now a democracy and has opened the doors of the archives there. So research for the three sisters um, were much, much easier than the research of Mao about Mao and the Empress Dowager. Jung, given that, that all of your books and others like it are banned in China, what mm. do you think that the younger generation know about that history and about the Cultural Revolution? If you wanted to find out, you can. It's just you run a certain risk and you have to have that desire. And I, I'm afraid many young people don't have the desire to find out, um, because not to find out makes life much easier. And to find out, you you only cause agony, frustration, maybe even despair to yourself. So it's it's very sad. I mean, Taiwan is a democracy. It publishes all my books, and it's widely read outside China. Before the last few years, and copies, many copies went into China through Hong Kong. And now that route has been cut off. And so it's very difficult now to read books like mine. Mm. I mean, of course, we're all watching the news from Hong Kong and Taiwan. How do you think that will pan out? I, I really have no idea. I think the thing with dictatorships is that you can't predict and I never thought this day will happen. I never thought there were people, there were Chinese, who wanted to return to Mao's years, 
to relive the Cultural Revolution, the horror of the Cultural Revolution, and to re-experience the famine. When you know, I think I dare say every family in China、um, was affected by the famine. And by the Cultural Revolution, and most people, I think, have unpleasant memories, to say the least. And yet, I mean, you know, I, actually, I was taken by surprise. There were people who really wanted to wind the clock back and return China to those awful years. The Communist Party's celebrated its hundredth anniversary this year. Do you think that it really has changed within that century? And are you hopeful for the future of the party, given that there's absolutely no discussion, really openly, about the history of the party? The current party is different now from Mao's days, and we're not seeing a real cultural revolution. We're not seeing a famine. It seems that you know a few people at the very top genuinely believe in Maoism, in Stalinism, in Leninism, in communism, and they really wanted to build China、um, on the model of that ideology. And they also have a dream、uh, to convert the world to that ideology. I feel immensely sad. But I think somebody said it's one's duty to be optimistic. I mean, of course,、um, there are signs of optimism. I mean, you know, today it's very different. Now people live a very different life from、um, how I lived under Mao. That's.、Um, but you know, we want we want a better. We want a we want a freer China. We want you know at least the China should be you know more like. And the post Mao China in the nineteen eighties nineties, and not not、um, to return to Mao's China. Yung, do you still have family members there, and are you able to see them? Well, my mother is still there. She's ninety. I don't think I feel very sad, but I realize that you know, if nothing dramatic. Um, happens, I may never see my mother again because she can't travel outside out of China, and I I don't think I can return to China. I mean, it's a different place now from those immediate post Mao years when I was really very optimistic. Until a few years ago, I was very optimistic, and today. I'm not so optimistic, so I, I feel very sad. I, you know, I might not see my mother again, but my mother is strong. I mean, she's a tower of strength for me, and she never put pressure on me to mince my word. And、um, you know, she's where our understanding is. I should write completely honestly, without any. Considerations and pulling no punches, and so for for this、um, we have a price to pay, and I think that this is the price we pay、um, for writing honestly.
And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. Do look out for next week's episode in which Monocle's Andrew Muller sits down with the former astronaut, Colonel Chris Hadfield. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. Our researcher for this episode was Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. From me, Georgina Godwin, thanks very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.